Well, thank you, worship team. Uh, what a fitting, fitting song to begin our next attribute of God uh, on the goodness of God. And I have been longing to come to this point. The goodness of God is such a fabulous, fabulous attribute. We've been studying some of the more austere and maybe profound attributes of God and certainly uh, I trust you as I have been blessed by that but as we move into the other attributes of God we we, be, we begin to see the more personal side of God and the, the more loving side of God and and uh, the, the, the good side of God this morning uh, which we will do uh, if you uh, if you can make your way to Psalm 119 this is going to be a text that we're going to use to kind of frame the topic uh, in our minds today. But uh, as I mentioned, uh, the goodness of God is, uh, is a very moving attribute for me personally. It's very perplexing to me as well in the sense that I don't always understand how God can be so rich in mercy and so good to a sinner like myself and one who lived a very clear life of rebellion, yet somehow, some way, gets to experience all of the grace and goodness of God. It's, it's convicting to me as well when I studied this attribute. I, I'm just like, God, why me? And I think all of us will, will uh, sense this as we, as we move through this. But I will say that to understand the goodness of God properly does require a redeemed perspective. You have to have the mind of Christ to really understand the goodness of God. I'll never forget the time that my mother told me a story of her attempting to communicate the gospel truth to my father, and she had uh, been explaining his need to um, surrender and, and, um, and recognize God as a source of, of truth and goodness in their lives, and he responded to her by saying, what good has God ever done for me? And you know, th that sentiment among worldlings and among people that don't know God is very common because they see things as the glass half full, do they not? And we can even be trapped in that at times. They, I remember uh, growing up and seeing that picture flashed on, on, a, on a screen one day of, the, of, a, of a picture of a woman. You, you may remember this. It's a woman. And depending on what perspective you have, it's either a very uh, uh, old and kind of kind of a weathered, uh, widowy-looking type of woman, or it's a very young and, uh, uh, you might say, beautiful and, and delightful picture of a woman. Do you remember this picture that's been shown through the years? And depending on what eye you view that with, and sometimes it's hard to see the other version of that. Or if we were to, to type the words, uh, God is now here across the top of this sanctuary and not have any spaces between those words, you and I might see that as God is now here. But someone with a different perspective can take those same words and same letters and say God is nowhere. And you can rightfully or, or, or conclude with that perspective that he is not here, a complete opposite version. And the goodness of God is this way. And you'll see this morning that you need this divine perspective to see it. Well, if you have your notes in front of you today, I'm going to jump right in. We've got a lot to cover. And uh, we're going to begin here with um, the, the definition of what we are referring to when we speak of the goodness of God. You know, there are a number of uh, terms in the Bible that describe this. Uh, there is a term in Greek called kalos, which means in, intrinsic goodness and, and uh, moral good. 
And then in the Old Testament, there is the word tov, where this means pleasantness and completeness and uh, goodness and uh, well-being. And in Psalm 119.68, we see this word tov used here in an amazing way here. And it says in Psalm 119, you are good, speaking of God, and you do good. This is our verse for today. Uh, It declares truth about God that he is good and that he, in fact, does good. And they are connected to one another here. So our definition for this morning is going to be this. The goodness of God is simply the attribute of God whereby he is the standard of what is good. He is the standard. We are not the standard and we cannot make the standard up, but he is the standard of good. But please note that the definition follows this text that he additionally acts from that goodness. He acts. He is not good and alone and apart, but his goodness results in a stream that ever flows from his being to mankind to benefit them in goodness. He benefits his creatures. He acts on behalf of his creatures. And that is really what Psalm 119.68 says. You are good and you, in fact, do good. God is the standard of goodness when he says that he is good. This is his nature. This is consistent with his character, his moral excellence. Uh, To say God is good is to say that he is the highest level of excellence. He is the highest level of perfection. He is intrinsically good. He is not just good, he is better. He is not just better, he is best. He is good as what that word means. The goodness of God, one writer says, means that he is to be admired, that he is attractive, and that he is praiseworthy. The biblical writers call God good. They are thinking in general of those moral excellencies which prompt his people to call him perfect. That was J.I. Packer. But notice the text also says, not only are you good, but you do good. That is to say that all of God's actions are pure in motive, but also pure in action. And, and it's, it's, it's not like a man who looks good on the outside, but then on the inside, it really isn't good at all. I'll never forget the time that I was uh, uh, sent to attend a leadership seminar and uh, delivering this seminar was the chief, uh, the assistant chief of police of the San Francisco Police Department, very large department, and a uh, very significant role that this individual would play in that department. And uh, he began the uh, lesson, I'll never forget this, he said, uh, I want you to know something as the representative of the San Francisco Ch- uh, Police Department. He says, my sole job is to make my boss look good. And uh, what do you think of that? My sole job is to make my boss look good, is what he said. And I, I asked that day in my mind, that's your sole job? And, and while we would never want to make our boss look bad, certainly that would not be appropriate, my question was this, what if your boss isn't good? And your sole job and purpose in life is to make something that which is not good look good, if that were the scenario. And I don't know that it was. But the problem is this, that a man can look good on the outside, but not be good on the inside. And this is what Jesus said when he said to the Pharisees, you're whitewashed tombs. 
You're, you're pretty and clean on the outside, but in, inside you're full of dead man's bones. And in Luke 10, 18, remember when the uh, lawyer came to Jesus and he said, uh, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, speaking from his humanity here, for this man did not really know him from Adam, says, why do you call me good? In, in the sense, uh, I'm fellow man here. Why do you call me good? There is none good but God alone. And so we're going to look at this topic of the goodness of God this morning. Psalm 119, 68, you are good and you do good. What did God ever do for me, asks my father. Well, we're going to find out what God did for all uh, in, in uh, a number of different categories this morning. So if you're uh, ready to take some notes here, what I'm going to say today is that there are three major categories where we're going to be studying God's goodness, and they're outlined with the major points there on your, on your notes. Three categories of God's goodness. Is he in fact good, and does he in fact do good? Let's test the psalm today, as it were, and understand and develop our perspective of this. Well, let's begin with the very first point here. God's goodness is displayed in his creation of the heavens and the earth. Would you write that in? We're going to go way back to Genesis 1 to view the goodness of God here, and we don't need to spend a lot of time on this. I want to save the majority for the uh, later portions of the message here, but God's goodness is displayed in his creation of the heavens and earth. We see in Genesis 1 here that in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, and what we need to see first of all is that this is displayed, this is seen in his motive. It's seen in his motive. In other words, in the beginning, God created. But why? Why did he create? Why did he choose to do this when we have already realized that he is perfectly content with himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout all eternity, didn't need us, uh, didn't, didn't add anything to his being by creating, but he creates nonetheless. And I believe it is a, it is a manifestation of, a, of his goodness. He is good, and now he's acting upon that goodness. See, this is a very important point we need to understand if we are to model our Heavenly Father. We can call ourselves good, but do we act on that goodness and manifest anything? He was not obligated, but he did out of his goodness. He created. Um, his method also here, underneath the same point of, of motive here, look at the way he did it. I mean, just, just uh, kind of glance down here. Uh, he, he could have made things strictly functional, right? He could have just made things just to work uh, without dazzling beauty, and yet he creates a world of dazzling beauty. He, he could have created a world with no spectacle, no, uh, you know, functionality only, but yet he, he, he builds aesthetics and beauty and, and just uh, amazing appearances with this created order. Raw physics could have just held everything together. Instead, he has this dazzling uh, a beauty of the planets and the stars and the sun and the moon. This is proclaiming God's goodness. It's seen in his motive. It's also seen in his pronouncement. Would you look through Genesis 1 with me here? As he creates the different aspects each day, creates light. Verse 4, God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from darkness. If you look down at verse 10, he, he continues um, to create. He separates the water, the expanse. And uh, it's verse uh, 10. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. At verse 12, we also see the, uh, 
the uh, earth bringing forth vegetation and plants, and I can just imagine the very first plants and their beauty and the flowers and such, and God saw that it was good, verse 12. 18, you think he's making a point here. There's more here, the sun and the night and all of, all of these heavenly hosts. And verse 18, he separated the light from darkness, and God saw that it was good. And then we reach verse 25. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. We see this, it is good, it is good, it is good, and this is our good God creating after his own nature of goodness. And then we also see it thirdly under this point of the heavens and the earth. We see it in his coronation. Now is the point, the final day of creation, where he makes man, and he makes man in his own image. He makes man as the crowning piece of his creation. And it is not until he makes man in verse 31 where it says that God saw that all he had, he had made and behold, it was now very good. Pretty good up until that point and now makes man and woman, actually. It's, it's woman who adds that element of being very good. And, and so this is just our God. This is his goodness displayed in the heavens and the earth. And there's a number of different scriptures that we could go to. I won't belabor this point, but maybe in your weekly studies, if you want to seek out a little bit more, all of those additional scripture references talk about how God waters the earth and, and uh, has it sprout with grains and that the hills are beautiful and the meadows and the dew falling. And, and it just goes on and on and on about the goodness of God to his creation, to just simply what he made. Now, listen, this is a very important point because we're building something here. If God is displaying goodness to dirt and plants and trees and flowers and, and the beauty of the, the world as we know it, what does that say of his goodness in other areas? What could this possibly say? God's abundant goodness permeates the entire created order and it's breathtaking. Psalm 33, 5 says the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. And folks, it's time, if we have not been there by now, it's time to start understanding God and his creation in this way, that the earth is full of his goodness. And I hope, if anything, today, my goal today is kind of to reset our minds a little bit, because we can become very worldly in our thinking. We can become very half, uh, you know, glass half empty, if not a fourth full, if not, I, I have hardly any goodness. And what has God done for me? And it's important to see that we haven't even gotten to us yet, but the created order teems with the goodness of God. So God's goodness is displayed by the manifestation of the heavens and the earth. Let's go on. Uh, point number two today is that God's goodness is also displayed to the animal kingdom. Now we're getting towards living beings, the animal kingdom. And uh, we're just testing our text today. You are good and you do good. Well, uh, we've seen that to be true with the heavens and the earth. Let's see if it's true with the animal kingdom. First of all, if you're uh, writing down, uh, let's put in the, the beasts of the land. The beasts of the land. And I, I thought of Job 38 in this. Job 38 is an interesting portion of scripture. It's where God kind of turns the tables on Job. Job is complaining. And listen, Job, I mean, right? The trials of Job. And, and we know this, and, and, and we understand the human side of this, but there does reach a point where, where God says enough, and he starts to call Job to task, and he, it's a powerful chapter in, in verse 38, 
where he starts to challenge Job. Have you ever, have you done, have you commanded the dawn, the morning, and all of these things? Do you understand the expanse of the earth? Uh, do you know how, how light is divided, Job? And, and do you know how, how the channels of the rivers are steered? And he begins to interrogate Job, can you, can you bind the chains of Pleiades, the, the constellation, or can you loose the cords of Orion? Uh, can, can, you, uh, can you form a constellation and, and uh, guide the bear with her satellites? Amazing questions he's having to ask. Have you fixed the rule of the ordinances of the heavens over the earth? I mean, this is just some powerful questions. Um, and then... In uh, Job 38 and verse 39, it then speaks to these beasts of the field. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? If you ever watch the Discovery Channel or if you ever watch those PBS specials on young lions or, or what, how, how hungry they are and how voracious they are and how do they get fed? Or, uh, or verse uh, 40, when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair. Or verse 41, who prepares for the raven its nourishment? The raven? Never thought of it. But who prepares, Job, when, the, when its young cry out to God and wander about without food? Who feeds that little bird? And then he answers this in Psalm 147.9. You don't have to turn there, but it says, He gives to the beast its food. He feeds that young lion and to the young ravens which cry. I love that. The young ravens which cry. The beast, its food. The beast, which could be a pretty or ugly animal, gets fed regardless. Uh, the raven, which, whose cry might be somewhat piercing and halting to our ears, meets the ears of his creator, and these catch his benevolent attention and he it results in food or deuteronomy 25 4 do not do not god says muzzle the ox while he is threshing the ox a beast of burden who cares god cares and he says do not starve out an ox while he is creating produce for your land well what is this saying about god it says that he cares for the animal kingdom the beasts of the land let's look at another one the creatures of the sea Psalm 104 and verse 27. These are in your notes here. Um, just trying to move through this section quickly here. Psalm 104 verse 27 talks about in verse 24 how many are thy wonderful works and wisdom you have made them all. And it talks about the sea and the great and all of that. But then in verse 11, uh, 27, it says uh, the, the uh, animals both small and great they, uh, oh, here it is, um, 24 rather. Uh, there is in the sea the great and the broad in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great in the sea. And uh, there the ships move along, and I love this, Leviathan. Leviathan, that great feared and awesome monster of the deep. You have made the sea, and it says, and Leviathan which thou hast formed to sport in it. I love that. Leviathan, the awesome, feared monster of the deep, he's just playing in, in the water. And, and, and it says that, uh, that you have made this so that Leviathan can do this, so that he can have sport. We never think of things this way. And they all, verse 27, wait for thee to give them their food in due season. 
The animal kingdom is waiting upon God to give them. And it says, you do give to them with an open hand. They are satisfied. You see where I'm going with this, folks, is that he's caring for the heavens and the earth. He's caring for the animal kingdom, the beasts, the creatures of the sea. Let's throw in thirdly the birds of the air. And, and you know these texts. I, we don't have to turn to each one. These are just uh, uh, sample texts, really. But Matthew 6:26. remember that that great text of our Lord saying, look at the birds of the air and look how they're clothed and, and they don't go hungry and your heavenly father feeds them and he's paying attention to those little birds. God is in the bird feeding business and he's caring for these little ones. And Matthew 10, 29 is another example of God caring for the sparrows. Not one falls to the ground without your heavenly father knowing. And are you, they're sold for a cent, he says. And are you not so much more valuable than these little birds? But the point is, is that God is caring for the animal kingdom. He's caring for the created order, and he's caring for his animals who are upon that created order. We could add a fourth one, animals in the kingdom, or the eternal state, depending on your view of that. Um, and there's a number of scriptures there, speaking of in the future, the lion laying down with the lamb. Well, who cares? Why do we mention that? Well, that's speaking of the peaceful, peaceful future that lies ahead, even for animals, if you take that literally. And uh, Revelation 5, speaking of every creature, land and sea. And uh, Revelation 19, uh, Jesus is seen coming back on a white horse. Have you ever noticed? It's a white horse. And if that is literal, that shows that there is some role for animals in the future. Now, I'm sorry to say that I don't know if your pets will necessarily be there. Uh, I don't think they will. I don't want to become public enemy, you know, especially among the kids on that one. But, um, you know, not sure all dogs go to heaven. But there are some animals that are seen in the eternal state, and we need to be aware of that. Well, again, I think the point is clear. God is good to the heavens and earth. He's good to the animal kingdom. kingdom. And I just want to spend the rest of our, our time this morning on this third point because now we're really getting uh, it to hit home for us. And that is that God's goodness is also displayed to all mankind. That's you and me. You say all mankind? All mankind. All mankind. God's goodness is displayed. Psalm 145, 15 says, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Every living thing? That's what the Bible says. Every living thing. All of creation. All of animals. All men. All women. All children. You satisfy the desire. Psalm 136.25 says, God gives food to all flesh. And his mercy endures forever. We're going to talk about his mercy in later lessons. But here it's a manifestation of his goodness. Again, making the case that all of his attributes are connected one to another. You can't have surely goodness without mercy. It's all, it's all his goodness and it's all his love as well, which we'll study. But he gives food to all flesh. I want to read to you a quote from Arthur Pink, who really captures this idea here and kind of kind of uh, clarifies it for us. Pink writes, uh, this is from Attributes of God. He writes, The goodness of God is seen in the variety of natural pleasures which he has provided for all of his creatures. 
God might have been pleased to satisfy our hunger without the food being pleasing to our palate. Do you ever think of that? I mean, he could have just, uh, I don't mean to be indelicate here, but he could have hooked us all up like with a, with a G-tube type of thing where we just kind of put our, put our food in and we don't get to taste it and we don't get to enjoy it, but we get the nourishment from it and there you're done and you're out the door. He could have done it that way. But he says uh, he, he creates food, but yet he allows our palates to, to enjoy it. How his benevolence appears in the, the varied flavors which, we, which he has given to meats and vegetables and fruits. God has not only given us senses, but also that which gratify the senses. And this too reveals his goodness. The earth might have been as fertile as it is without its surface being so delightfully variegated. Our physical lives could have been sustained without beautiful flowers to regale our eyes with the colors and our nostrils with the sweet perfumes. We think of the spring blooms that are currently happening or maybe you're planting gardens or your, your flower beds. He could have made this earth without all of those, but we get to enjoy them. We might have walked the fields without our ears being saluted by the music of the birds. Again, I'm trying to get our minds thinking here. What about the goodness of God? And where do we see the goodness of God, even this morning hearing the Blue Jays uh, up where we live? And then he asks a question. Whence then this loveliness, this charm, so freely diffused over the face of nature? Verily, quote, the tender mercies of the Lord are over all his works. Psalm 145, 9. What, what a masterful way of catching all of this goodness of God displayed to us. J.I. Packer again writes, God controls all that happens in his world. Every meal, every pleasure, every possession, every bit of sunlight, every bit of good night's sleep, every moment of health and safety, everything else that, that he sustains and enriches life with is a divine gift. How abundant these gifts are from his book called Knowing God. Well, let's test this here. Eli, you said his goodness is displayed to all mankind. Is it really that way? Let's test this, first of all, with the helpless, the poor, and the needy. Would you write that last word in? The helpless, the poor, and the needy. I remember mowing lawns as I made my way through seminary early in those years, and I was mowing a lawn for uh, an elderly lady who was just uh, bent, just hardened in life, uh, very secular-minded, and and uh, I began giving the gospel to her. I would use those opportunities uh, to, to speak the truth where I could. And I remember afterwards, she said, you know, Eli, I appreciate what you're studying, and I, I respect that, and, and it's not what I believe. And, but I, I said, well, what do you believe? And she said, well, I believe that um, God helps those who help themselves. Have you heard that? God helps those who help themselves. In fact, there's even Christian surveys done that uh, many Christians believe that that's in the Bible, and it's not in the Bible. Uh, that's actually um, uh, written by Benjamin Franklin in uh, Poor Richard's Almanac is where that comes from, which is just a worldly, secular way of viewing life. Some helpful tips in it, early to morning, early to rise, makes you healthy, wealthy, and wise, you know. Or, or, I'm sorry, how's it say? Early to bed, early, got to quote the man right at least. But <laughs> you know, this is just kind of a worldly book on how to live life. And she says, I believe God helps those who help themselves. Well, is that true? Because Psalm 68.10 says, you provided in your goodness for the poor, those who cannot help themselves. 
And we see throughout Scripture again and again that God is the defender of widows, right? Widows who are often taken advantage of, widows who have lost in many respects the strength of, of, a, of a husband being in, in their lives and, and, and need defense at times and protection. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees about how you devour widows' houses and he's modeling his heavenly father. I'm going to care for these widows. I'm looking out for them. In fact, it was John Calvin who said there's three offices in the church. I don't know if I would go this far, but he says there's three offices in the church. Elder, deacon, and any guesses what he says the third one is? Widow. Powerful, powerful thoughts on that. That they are to be offices in the church. And we say, oh, an elder, a pastor, wow, we hold them so high. Oh, a deacon, a, a servant of the church, we hold them so widow. Yeah, we, we hold them high. I don't know if we would go that far, but the truth is, is that God is a defender of widows. I think of uh, uh, Psalm 146. Uh, psalm 146 is a great psalm, and uh, I'm going to volunteer Sarah to sing this psalm one day, not this morning. Um, this is a beautiful, beautiful song called Hallelujah, Praise Jehovah. I don't know if you've ever heard that. We're going to we're going to share that with you one day soon, and she might need a partner there because it has a beautiful harmony, but um, talks about uh, praise the Lord, I will uh, praise the Lord on my soul, um, and then it says, uh, do not trust in princes or in mortal man in whom there is no salvation, and then it, it gets down to verse 7 in here, he said, he's talking about he who made the heavens and the earth and the sea that is all that in, uh, within them, and then it says in verse 7, who executes justice for the oppressed the defender of the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. God helps those who help themselves, you hungry, get it together. No, no, no. God sees the hungry, he sees the oppressed, and it activates the attribute of his goodness, and he delivers through the streams of goodness and mercy to them. It says, the Lord gives food to the hungry, and he sets the prisoners free, the hopeless the ones that are bound forever in chains and cannot be freed, he sets them free and he opens the eyes of the blind. He raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous and he protects the stranger. He protects and supports the fatherless. And here it is, defender of the widow. This is just beautiful, beautiful truth about the goodness of our God. He is helpful to the helpless and to the poor and to the needy. And I think you're already thinking of, of applications. How can we be like our God? Because we should note somewhere in this study, this is a communicable attribute of God. We're getting into the attributes that we can now relate to a little bit as humans. We should model our God. We should be thinking after the thoughts of our God, who is all goodness. We can reflect that goodness. Well, let's look on here. Not only does he defend the helpless, the poor, and the needy, but also, he cares for, get this, this will be hard to swallow, the wicked, the godless, and the rebellious. The wicked, the godless, and the rebellious. Those who don't love him, those who don't serve him, those who don't honor him, they also receive goodness from the hand of God. And this is very good to understand in, as we develop our view of the lost. It's important to understand, to have a biblical view of the lost, that we want to make sure that the ungodly remain our mission field. 
and the ungodly are not ever to necessarily be our enemies, but we were once enemies of the cross, were we not? And we have to remember our own pilgrimage here, but it is the wicked, the godless, and the rebellious. Uh, Matthew 5:48 speaks of this. Uh, we refer to this in theology as common grace. But Matthew 5, uh, 45 speaks of, um, it says, uh, verse 43, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and, and uh, hate your enemy. Uh, that, that was added. Uh, that you're to love your neighbor. That, that was added by rabbis, hate your enemy. But I say to you, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Verse 45, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Seeing the connection here now. God is good, and his children should reflect that goodness. And by manifesting that goodness, you are called a son of heaven, son of your Father who is in heaven. But he gives the reason here later in verse 45, for he, that is God, causes his son, S-U-N, to rise upon the evil and the good. Uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you because he, God, is causing his son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those uh, who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax gatherers do the same? And he goes on in this teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, but the point is he's saying, look at God. Look what God, you want to be godly? You want to be God-like? Do what God does, and he sends sun and rain on the wicked, on the evil, on, on his enemies. This is why I told you in the beginning, this is perplexing to me, this, this aspect of the goodness of God. This stuns me. This convicts me, because I don't always do that. I really have a strong, I think maybe part of it is my, my profession that I've given myself to for 20 years plus. I have a strong view of justice. Maybe you've seen it come out by now. I have a strong view of, uh, of uh, responsibility and holding people accountable. But this challenges me to say, okay, hold on a minute. God is treating the wicked, the godless, and the rebellious with sunlight and rain. And it goes on from here. Uh, Acts 16, this is a good one maybe to look at. Acts 16, Paul, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Paul and Barnabas are... Um, are preaching here. Remember, this is where uh, they were, the people that they were preaching to in Acts tried to worship them. And they thought Paul and uh, Barnabas was a god, and they called Paul Zeus and uh, Barnabas, or no, they what was it, Zeus and Hermes, I believe. Um, and that's not a bad name, by the way. It sounds kind of goofy. We wouldn't name our son Hermes, but um, it, it, uh, it means uh, the, the god of speech, and it, it, was, a, it was a powerful um, you know, allegedly viewed as a powerful God. But uh, interesting here in Acts 14 and verse 16, uh, yeah, Barnabas was Zeus, Paul was Hermes, <laughs> uh, because he was the chief speaker. That was a, it was a title of honor. And um, he's saying, don't, don't worship us. We are mere men, verse 15. Why are you doing these things? We have the same nature of you. We're just preaching the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things, your idols, worshiping creatures rather than the creator, turn to a living God, here it is, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is within them. Listen, don't ever be afraid in your evangelism to model the apostles here 
who's appealing to the nature and the goodness of God, appealing to the created order. God made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And verse 16, in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way. Verse 17, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. In that, here it is, he did good. He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That's a very important verse to understand as you develop your your interactions with ungodly people. That your own creator God is giving them good food and fruitful seasons, satisfying their hearts with food and gladness. An evil person can be glad? Yes. And there's a purpose for all of this. Uh, he's, he's going somewhere with this. But the godless enjoy the beauty of God's creation. They enjoy the wonders of marriage. They get to see their children grow up just like we get to see ours grow up. The rebellious benefit from gainful employment. They can advance their careers. They, they enjoy the exhilaration of getting a promotion. They enjoy personal development and growth just like you and I do. The ungodly can enjoy friendships. They experience laughter. They can encourage one another. They can benefit from medicine and art and travel and entertainment and all of the things that we also get from the hand of our Heavenly Father. Now, we understand it differently, do we not? We understand it and interpret those good things differently. But God is good to the wicked, the godless, and the rebellious, so much so that in Psalm 73, Asaph writes that psalm and says, look at them, God. Look at how much they prosper. And the people of God sometimes uh, can wither underneath the godless. And Asaph is saying they, they have everything they need and they have all the money and they have all the position and the status and the clout. But then he says, but I considered their end. I considered their end that this is really only temporary. But why is God doing this? It's causing me to stumble here. And the answer is found in Psalm 25, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore instructing sinners in the way. You see, all of this goodness on the part of the lost is instructing them. It's trying to show them. It's trying to teach them the right way. And in Romans 2.14, it says, The kindness of God should lead to repentance. And so there's a purpose here. And so we, we don't try to stand in the way of the, the godless from receiving the blessings of God. We just try to help them be, be pointed to God as a result of it. Another good quote from Pink here says, Notwithstanding all the evils which attend our fallen state, the balance of good greatly preponderates, right? Haven't you had more good days than bad days? I mean, if you're really honest, unless you're just a, a fouled-out negative person here today, I think you've seen more sunny days in your life than you've seen cloudy days. You've seen more days of health. It says, uh, with, with comparatively rare exception, men and women experience a far greater uh, number of days of health than they are sickness and pain. There is much more creature happiness than creature misery in the world, and even our sorrows admit to a considerable alleviation. This is something to consider here. Even when we have sorrow, there are moments of alleviation and uh, tender mercies that visit even when we are ill. God has given to the uh, human mind a pliability which adapts itself to circumstances and makes the most of them. Isn't that, isn't that that's the military way, adapt and overcome, Right? And, and that, is, that is the goodness of God in us, that we can, we can work through difficulties. And, oh, I need to move on, but I remember reading stories about the Hanoi Hilton in Vietnam. 
and the Hanau Hilton where our soldiers, our, our Navy pilots were captured and, and uh, they decided we're not going to let this prison beat us, but we are going to um, encourage one another. We're going to have physical exercise regiments and we're going to have an educational system through tap, tap codes and we're going to be talking to each other in other halls and other cells. And just this beautiful spirit of overcoming and adaptation. This is God's blessing, even upon the wicked, even upon those who don't know Christ. Well, the point has been made that God is concerned for the helpless. He's concerned for the evil. And I just want to conclude today with uh, pointing out that God also obviously is attentive to the cries of the redeemed, the saved, and the forgiven. And that's you. And that's me. And this is really the crowning portion of the message today I want to just leave you with in your mind. That you haven't known the goodness of God. You have not experienced the goodness of God until you have experienced salvation. Freedom from sin. Freedom from captivity. Freedom from meaninglessness and senselessness of, of, of a life without God and without Christ. You can talk about your juicy steaks on, on, your, on your gatherings all you want. You can talk about the, the great friendships and, and uh, enjoyment that you have in life and the good times of life, but you have known nothing until you have come to grips with being redeemed, being saved, and being forgiven. This is salvation. In him we have redemption, Paul says, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1.7. Galatians 4.4. 4, God, in the fullness of time, sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law that he might redeem those who are under the law and then give them the adoption of sons. It's one thing to just say, okay, you're forgiven. No wrath, no judgment. Oh, he takes us even further and he, he converts that, that uh, forgiveness into making us sons of the kingdom, sons of God. And as sons, given the right of redemption, the right of inheritance, uh, in him. And this is a very important point to consider because in 1 Peter 1.12, there's a reference speaking to the holy angels. It says this issue of salvation, you'll recall in 1 Peter 1.2, is something in, into which angels long to look. We don't want to miss the importance of that. Angels appear in heaven peering down. In fact, there's a song written about this, uh, the, the verse says, uh, downward bends their wandering eye at mysteries so bright. Why would someone write a lyric like that? Because in 1 Peter 1.12, it says the angels uh, long to look into this issue of salvation. Well, why would an angel long to look into redemption? Why do you think? It's because an angel has never experienced redemption. An angel sealed in perfection, sealed in purity. Now there's the fallen angels that don't experience it and are sealed in doom. But the unfallen angels, they look at our salvation, they look at what we've received and they say, what, what mystery is this? In other words, folks, angels who have never known sin, never tasted the perils and the bitter pill of sin, look to sinners and they say, what would it be like? What is forgiveness like? We don't know. What is mercy like? We don't need mercy. What is, what is redemption like? And, and uh, 
patience and long suffering with a with a sinner what is that they don't know and so they look to you and they look to me to experience as closely as possible and then they praise the lord for it anyway throughout all eternity angels long to look into what you have and what sometimes you kind of just casually go through your day yeah i'm a christian yeah i'm forgiven and I just want you to see, beloved, today how, how magnificent that is, the goodness of God manifested in your salvation. Is it any wonder why at the announcement of the Lord Jesus, the angels sang peace on earth and goodwill towards men? We're not going to get it. We won't experience this, but you will. And so in conclusion here, I have a little box there. We won't go through this. You can study that on your own. But God's goodness towards the redeemed has so many manifestations in his provision, in his plans, in his providence, in his protection, in his patience, and in his perfect purpose. There's a whole other sermon there if you want that. You can <laughs> dig out all those P words if you want. Nahum 1.7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Do you feel like you're in trouble ever? Do you kind of wonder what the future holds? You have to go into the future knowing that the Lord is good. He knows those who take refuge in him. You have to be there to really see the goodness of, of the Lord. And I love Psalm 8411 also in your notes. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. It, it is the upright folks who are the special benefactors of the goodness of God. It is the people of God that he just pours his crowning goodness into you and into I. Well, so what, Eli? Let's wrap this up. You've been babbling for a long time about this goodness of God. So what? Let's have some practical thoughts here as we close. Number one, concluding applications, believers should never doubt God's goodness, right? We should never doubt God's goodness. We should never view God as not being, as being anything other than being good. Now, we have hard days. We know this. We have trials, and we have trials ahead. But Romans 8.28 says that God causes all things to work together for what? Good to those who love God and who those who are called according to his purpose. And so God is creating good circumstances even in our trials, even in our difficulty, even in our sickness, even in our present distress of this world right now. He is causing good to come out of it. And I'll tell you, you are blind if you cannot see good that has come out of this situation. Yes, it's, it's a difficult time and challenging, but he caused, and we should never doubt his goodness. So we, as the song says, ought to count our blessings. Name them one by one. Count your every blessing. See what God has done. Believers never doubt. Secondly, believers should model God's goodness to others, should we not? This is a communicable attribute. This is something we can share and model with, with God. As image bearers, we should demonstrate goodness. And I mean demonstrate love for neighbor in tangible ways. We've seen all the ways in which God does it through food and through warmth and beauty and all of these different ways. Well, could we think of ways where we can model goodness to others? And by the way, not just Christians, not just Christians, although we should because Galatians 6.10 says, do good to all men, but especially those of the household of faith. I love that. I love that, that, that those of the household of faith should be our special attention, but really not to the exclusion of all men, Galatians 6.10 says. And then thirdly, just to wrap up, believers, 
We don't doubt it. We model to others. And thirdly, we should forever praise God for his goodness. Amen. We should praise him. We, we should sing songs of praise that reflect his goodness, much like what we did already this morning, and not feel guilty about his goodness. Oh, I don't deserve it. Oh, I didn't work hard to earn this. No, that's why it's called goodness. That's why it's called grace. We'll look at those attributes later here. See, we're used to misrelating to God, right? Our sin has put such a barrier between us and God that we, we don't even know how to relate to him sometimes. And he's working this out through us. But the truth remains that we should praise him. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. We need to see him this way. Why? For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Well, I hope that this has been a challenge for you this morning. Thank you so much for your attention. We're, we're out of time. I'd like us just to stand here, and I hope that you will begin this week to begin viewing God within the light of his goodness and all of the wonderful things which he provides for us each day. Let's, uh, let's close and uh, have just a moment of prayer as we really follow this psalm. That, oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. Heavenly Father, we do just pause now to thank you. <laughs> Despite your sometimes strange providence, Lord, that you give such good and rich gifts to your children, Lord. We are forever the beneficiaries of that, Lord. And I think of that song, For the beauty of the earth, for the glory of the skies, for the love which from our birth over and around us lies. Lord of all, to thee we raise this, our hymn of grateful praise. Lord, let us go forth with praise and thanksgiving and joy and laughter on our hearts. Lord, let us not be focused on the, the bitterness of this fallen world, but instead, Lord, the, the beauty and sweetness of your goodness each and every day, Lord. And we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.